this came about uh, that Abimelech actually was became king was because of Gideon's sin, Gideon's compromise with the culture and the breaking of God's commandment dealing with polygamy. We also learned last week that the Protestant uh, reformers were very much taken up with the book of Judges. Uh, the reformers were confronted with a papal tyranny uh, in the Roman Catholic Church. And they also faced increased uh, tyranny in the form of monarchs and kings who declared absolute uh, uh, right to rule, divine right to rule over them. And so the Puritans and later the the reformers and later the Puritans found in Judges the arguments against this trend. And they found that Judges presented the underlying problem, and that problem was a moral and spiritual betrayal of Jesus Christ. They also saw in the book of Judges that the lust of political power was dangerous. So the next section... uh, that we come to in in the book of Judges is chapters 10 through 12. And it continues the same theme on how dangerous political power can be. And the central character in that section will be Japheth. And you can see him up there, number eight. However, wrapped around his story, Um, is what we refer to as the minor judges. Um, Up there you can see Pola and Jair and then Ibzan and Elon and Abdon. And so we're going to deal with those minor judges today. And uh, as I said last week, these men seem to have uh, no importance whatsoever if you read them independently. However, if we take a closer look at them, we still see the theme of boasting and a tendency toward tyranny uh, is what is emphasized in their texts. The stories of these uh, minor judges seem to have little purpose, but again, like I said, taken in the larger context of the book, it seems that the big picture, these verses become more meaningful and it uh, definitely reveals the sinful heart of fallen man. So turn to chapter 10 of the book of Judges. Chapter 10 and verse 1. Verse 1, now after Abimelech died, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Iskar, arose to save Israel. And he lived in Shemar in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried in Shemar. 
again, we, we're dealing with minor judges with very little information here, uh, so uh, we can draw some things out uh, of this and apply it to the bigger picture. Um, the term Tola, the, his name means worm. I don't know what their mother or father was thinking when they named him that, but his name means worm. But it can also refer to a scarlet-colored uh, cloth that was made from a dye that was created by crushing worms and then dyeing that cloth uh, to change it to the color red or scarlet. And this was a type of robe that was worn by some of the judges a robe of honor to signify the dignity of the office of judge. I don't know that Tola had a robe like that, but that's a possibility of, again, the idea of honoring the judge, wearing something special, um, kind of um, a boasting factor that um, becomes a characteristic of, of some of these judges. And after him, J.R., the Gileadite, arose and judged Israel for 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities which are in the land of Gilead uh, that are called the towns of J.R. to this day. And J.R. died and was buried in common. J.R. judged in Gilead across the Jordan for 22 years. The name J.R. Um, means splendid. Uh, this might have been an honorable name, but in something we see a little bit of boasting here in Mr. Splendid. Um, we are told that he had 30 sons. Therefore, we assume again that he was probably a polygamist, having more than one wife. Um, we are told that he appointed his 30 sons over 30 cities, and that it, they rode honorably on 30 donkeys. Uh, J.R. then, in contrast with Tola, is seen as moving towards in the direction of royal privileges. And he seemed to be setting up a goal of setting up a dynasty with his sons ruling over these cities. There was an earlier man by the name of J.R. back in the book of Numbers uh, 32-41 that uh, established these towns but according to 1 Chronicles uh, 2.22, there were only 23 of these towns. So we see this J.R. has expanded uh, his control over the land by establishing other cities in order to put his 30 sons into power and uh, have them uh, become a dynasty of, of a ruling class. Again, this is in context of the whole book of Judges, we see the, the culture and the people moving towards this kingship 
idea. J.R. was a judge, and therefore the Spirit of God was with him, and he was undoubtedly a wise man and a godly man in most parts. He, he had weakness, however, and he, he gave in to that pressure of the time, and that pressure was, uh, again, moving towards a higher, arrogant, humanistic state, a one of control, uh, dyn uh, a dynasty. <clears throat> so we see here Tola, you can see in the map, and Jr. where they were ruled from. We're talking basically here about the northern part of Israel. These minor judges were basically... Uh, rising up in the northern part of the, uh, the land of Israel. Even though when God brings judgment, he will bring judgment from the north and from the west and from the south. So there will be a, uh, all of Israel will be uh, uh, oppressed by some of the judgments of God. But basically these men <clears throat> that we're referring to today are from the northern regions of Israel. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with Japheth since we'll be dealing with him a, a lot in the, on the next two chapters. But uh, just suffice it to say, um, uh, he was the man uh, from Gilead, and they offered him um, a crown um, and he <coughs> uh, to rule over him. <coughs> And he demanded this crown in exchange for delivering them. So Japheth, as we shall see, intended to build for himself a kingdom by symbolically sacrificing his firstborn on the threshold of his own house. <clears throat> but God uh, puts a stop to his plans. And um, we'll see uh, the result of that as we spend some more time with his life. So skip over to chapter 12 of Judges. <clears throat> in chapter 12 and starting in verse 8 we see the next minor judge. Ibzan. <clears throat> Verse 8, now Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel for, for him, and he had 30 sons and 30 daughters whom he sent outside, um, and he brought 30 daughters from outside for his sons, and he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried in Bethlehem. <clears throat> So Ibzan was from Bethlehem in the area of Zebulon. Uh, it was not the Bethlehem of Judah. Again, we're talking about the northern section of the, um, the nation of Israel. Um, the scripture probably would have emphasized that uh, and revealed that, or maybe have said Bethlehem of Ethara. Um, 
we're still, um, again, dealing with judges in the north here. Now, Ibzen had 60 children, and therefore we are assuming he had several wives, and again, polygamy uh, being the sin that is dealt with here. Uh, the text stresses his tendency towards male uh, rule uh, by very mo <clears throat> monitoring very carefully the control of his daughters, um, and particularly arranging for marriages of his sons. So uh, each one would probably involve a political or military alliance. So as he married off a daughter or a son, uh, he was probably uh, involved with some kind of an alliance with somebody. So again, we see the tendency towards tyranny, the tendency towards kingship, uh, the tendency towards uh, power and control here. sometimes referred to as the unknown judge. Um, very simply, in verse 11, now Elon, the Zebulonite, uh, judged Israel after him, and he judged Israel ten years. And then Elon, the Zebulonite, died and was buried at Ajalon in the land of Zebulun. Elon's uh, name means oak tree. And we see him as a contrast between Ibzan and Abdon. Um, nothing is said here about 30 sons for Elon, so apparently uh, he resisted the um, temptation of, of polygamy. At least it's not listed here in Scripture. Verse 13, now Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pyrathonite, judged Israel after him. And he had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. And he judged Israel for eight years. Then Abaddon, the son of Hillel, the Pyrathonite, died and was buried in Pyrathon, in the land of Ephraim, in the hill country of the Amalekites. So we can make a, uh, some assumptions here. We, we probably, Abaddon uh, must have been an old man when he became a judge, for he already had 40 sons and 30 uh, grandsons. And Abdon means servant, but uh, obviously he was not as much a servant as he could have been because he was also a polygamist. Uh, he extended his dynasty activity beyond just the sons, but also to his grandsons. So we see a progression here taking place um, that was um, not seen before. 
So again, the, the minor judges here are emphasized that we see a progression taking place, this move towards kingship, this move towards a, a humanistic uh, domination um, of, of the people. Okay, there's a slide up there at the very top. Very top. No, just the, there's a slide. Move a black slide up there at the very top. Yep, just move that slide left to right. Thank you. And then if you find the power button, you can turn it on. Okay. I guess this is a good place as any to stop and make a few comments on the death and burial notices of, of the judges. <clears throat> Beginning uh, with Gideon, we are told that the, uh, of the burial places for each of the judges, except for Abimelech, so the question is, why does the text tell us that each judge died? Is that a surprise to any of us? I, I don't think it would be. I don't think we would have any doubt that they would die. <clears throat> we have to look at a, a theological reason then for why they would list this here uh, by calling attention to the deaths of these judges. <clears throat> any thoughts as to why they were listing these judges' deaths in their burial places here? <clears throat> Right on, yeah. Right. Exactly. Good job. Anybody else? Yeah. We will pass on. Very good. <clears throat> so as, as Micah just said, uh, Scripture here reminds us that the rescue of these judges, the rescue of the people from oppression, 
um, was only temporary. Death is still has the last word. And thus men were still not really delivered from the curse of their original sin. And this points to the need of a final deliverer uh, who would save us from death itself. And it points to the resurrection <coughs> uh, that is to come, and it, the hope of the resurrection. <clears throat> and yet, uh, Scripture here mentions the burial sites. And I think one of the reasons they mention the burial sites is because oftentimes tombs or grave sites uh, are memorials. I mean, go to a cemetery and see the, the stone headstones. They're, they're memorials. Uh, they remember people, <clears throat> uh, they remind the people that are there of the curse of death and the curse of sin. <clears throat> and they were memorials of the sure and certain hope to come that um, a deliverer would rise up, uh, that would rise up and conquer death and uh, raise the men from the dead as well. <clears throat> Thus the Old Testament often pays attention to burial sites of prominent uh, individuals mentioned in, in Scripture. Uh, where the text does not mention a burial place is often is like Abimelech, uh, this indicates um, by way of contrast that there was no memorial for him. There was no reason to remember him. <clears throat> Sorry about the cough here. Um, so uh, it's apparent that these verses, the last three judges were old men, and they, uh, when they began to judge, and probably told on J.R., um, uh, we're getting along in years as well. And this is a contrast with Gideon, who was the youngest in his father's family. And at the time that he was called to be a judge, we only know that he had one child at that time. <coughs> More than likely, there were, uh, these were important men in their communities. So death and burial are not uh, recorded for Ehud or, or Deborah. But that stands outside the context we're talking about here. We're talking about the second half of Judges here, starting with Gideon. The reason why they were not mentioned, I don't know why Deborah and Ehud's uh, places were not mentioned. And, and it's unknown. Um, but uh, these people um, may have been, um, uh, these judges may have been uh, important in their communities and rose up through the ranks. Perhaps they started as elders over 50, elders over 100, over, elders over 1,000, until they became a judge over all of Israel. And therefore, the uh, memorials were, were mentioned in their, these scriptures for them. Uh, the three polygamists, J.R., Ibzan, and Abdom, uh, must have indulged in this... Uh, uh, sin uh, prior to becoming judges over all Israel. Uh, for instance, Abdon uh, could not have produced 40 sons and 30 grandsons in just eight years as a judge. What this means to indicate, uh, at least to me, is that the leaders in Israel were drifting into a position of seeking special honors, seeking special privileges, 
and they were viewing themselves as above certain provisions of the law. And particularly, they were above the prohibition of polygamy. So we start to see the symbols, the effects, and the signs of kingship in these minor judges, but without really naming it. But we see the, the symbols taking place here. So the powerful were beginning to act less like servants of the people, less like servants of the Lord, and more like aristocracy. So we can see that drift happening uh, with the judges, but that's not what God had originally intended. That's not what God had originally had in mind. We can see the direction of the Israelite society moving away from what God had in mind. Let's turn back to Exodus chapter 18. Exodus chapter 18. <clears throat> and starting in verse 13. Verse 13 through 27. Dale, could you read that for me, please? Yes, through 27, yeah.
Thank you. <clears throat> we see God setting up a social system here. And it's being turned, and in, in the book of Judges, we see the people turning their back on what God had originally established here. There was two aspects to this social system. One was the ministry of the Levites. <clears throat> they were uh, locally scattered throughout Israel, and they were charged to, uh, uh, to become pastors of quote-unquote churches. And their job was to teach the people about God and teach the people about God's law. And so they would be mature in the faith and also in self-government. The other aspect of the system laid down here was a uh, system of judges and courts of appeals. Um, there were judges over tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands with a final court of appeal at the top of the system. So this is what God had established. This is what he had in mind. The whole thrust of this system was to stay local and choose and be able to um, work with the local problems on a daily basis. The immediate day-to-day -day decisions would be made by the local elders, the ones who uh, sat at the gate, if you recall, and which were elders over tens. So the closer you stay to the problem, the easier it is to solve the problem. Only the hard cases would be appealed up the line, and only the toughest cases of all would come to the judge over all of Israel. Thus, there was a strong government over the whole nation in one sense, because if you did not obey what the judge ruled, the death penalty uh, was, uh, could be applied if you defied the judge, and that's found in Deuteronomy 17.8. Yet for the most part, the central government uh, did not do anything with the day-to-day -day affairs of the citizens. It only existed as a final court of appeals. The tendency, however, with sinful men, as we see here in the book of Judges, is to reverse this. Today, instead of local churches with courts of appeals, we get top-heavy denominational organizations that tend to invade and feed on the local ministries. Instead of local governments, we get national governments issuing minute policies and heavy national taxations. Instead of local police um, being accountable to the local people, we get the FBI the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. We get 80,000 armed IRS agents. We get the U.S. Marshals, and the list goes on and on. And the reason for this is because uh, humanism uh, is centered around man. It's not centered around God. Man becomes the king, not God. And so man becomes the center Of, uh, of how the country is ruled and, and, and man is uh, the uh, center of all things instead of God. Since God is omnipresent, he can manifest his rule in every place and every place at the same time. Now, if the Levites or the churches are strong and they're teaching the same thing from Scripture in every place, 
then God uh, is present and um, because of his omnipresent, he can manifest uh, through the work of the church and makes for a, a better civilization. Um, it's fundamentally uniform throughout. Uh, but when men want to play God, however, they can only impose their will with, in large areas through the use of tyranny and violence. Um, to get a uniform culture, they have to use force. Um, and this uh, nullifies the local diversity and, and the local culture. In a biblical society, the larger government sets only general policy and serves as a court of appeals. But in a humanistic state, the larger government sets all policy, specific as well as general, and thus destroying the local diversity and also destroys innovative thinking that solves some of the local problems that we might otherwise be able to deal with. So the bottom line is that man was never created to be omnipresent. Men are by nature local, and they can only be one place at a time, and they can only effectively govern just one thing at a time. So a wise man might be able to manage a court of appeals for only a few things that are appealed, but no man uh, can rule over all the details for a whole civilization. <clears throat> so whenever men try to do that, it's because they are up usurping God's uh, prerogatives, and they become tyrants. And so this was what Samuel was trying to warn the people about in the book of Judges. Don't go in this direction. And we're assuming that Samuel wrote Judges anyway. And then Samuel capsulizes this same warning in his uh, sermon in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And again, uh, the summary and uh, the lessons that uh, he's trying to teach in ju Judges here. Uh, it's not wrong to be like other nations in having a king, but it is wrong to want a king who is like the kings of all the other nations. If your king is God, that's okay. But if you want a king that is ruling like men of the other ones, that's not okay. And then he goes on to warn them, a king of all the nations would create a standing army and he would force a draft on your men. He would make himself rich by taking over large land holdings. And he would take their daughters for their own purposes. Samuel warned them that this king would confiscate their traditional family property. Uh, he would take, uh, tax them heavily and take a tithe unto himself. We give a tithe to God. Here he's taking a tithe. This king is going to become like a god. He would take their servants and their best animals, and finally he would make them all slaves. Uh, this would all be done in the name of more efficient central government. This was the warning Samuel was giving to the people here in Judges, as well as later on in Samuel, 1 Samuel 8. So this was the warning Israel refused to heed. This same warning was given to us by the Puritan forefathers who knew firsthand what it was like to live under tyranny. And we did not heed their warning either. 
As you know, our uh, Constitution was written with the principle of limited government in mind. Limited power was given to the federal government, with most of the power reserved to the states. Today, these biblical lessons have been completely reversed, and the document has been turned on its head. If the book of Judges had any message to us at all, it is this, when God once again is king in his church, and the pastors are doing their job, and the people are obeying them and they're obeying God, then the tyrants will be gone. The first part of Judges shows that God can take care of foreign tyrants. The second part warns that he will also face, we will also face internal tyrants. Uh, our local kings and rulers. <clears throat> well, that kind of summarizes the minor um, judges. Uh, any comments or thoughts on that? Well, then let's turn back to uh, chapter 10 of Judges, verse 6. I'm going to lay a little bit of a groundwork, a little bit of a summary here of what to expect. <clears throat> In Judges 10 uh, through 12... Uh, we can see the following things happening. And, and this was the, um, the example I wanted to use at the beginning of Judges. I laid down that God made the command, and people responded, God evaluated. And so in Judges 10 <clears throat> through 12, we see God's judgment here uh, with Philistines and, and Ammon. And, God's re and the people's response to that is, a superficial repentance. They were not sincere in their repentance. And then God will evaluate that. And he saw the superficial repentance, um, if you want to call it easy believism. Um, and God rejected that. He did not send relief. And that was his evaluation. And then in the response of the people is that they became more contrite and humble and more sincere in their repentance. And God's response to that was to send a deliverer and uh, raise, raise up a deliverer to uh, relieve them of their oppression. For the rest of the commands, God's commands were just general laws uh, lying in the background that the people rejected. Uh, for instance, in Judges chapter 11, um, God's command was that, I am your king. And uh, the people's response was that, no, Japheth will be our king. And God's evaluation was that Japheth's plans would be destroyed. In Judges 12, we see God's command to submit to my anointed one. And we see Ephraim's response, we're going to make war on the anointed one. And God's judgment is that the anointed one destroys Ephraim. Uh, and so um, these are the things that we can look forward to. This is what we expect to see. And there's a pattern here of God's commands, people's uh, response, 
in God's evaluation of them. So in verse 6, we see the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. Thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. <clears throat> Makes you wonder how many gods in our culture that we're worshiping today. I bet there were one of the seven. And the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. Verse 8, And they afflicted and shattered and crushed the sons of Israel in that year. For eighteen years they oppressed all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan, which is in Gilead, in the land of the Amorites. And the son of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was greatly distressed. We see here, I think, a, a, a turning point in the book of Judges. Uh, the people have apostatized before, and God, God had brought a deliverance to them. Now, however, they move into a sevenfold or a complete apostasy. Any God is preferable to Yahweh. And as a result, Yahweh's hands on Israel hands them over to Ammon in the north and in the west and Philistia in the south. The rather grotesque histories of the last two judges uh, deal with these, this oppression. <clears throat> and the core of each story shows the hopelessness of man uh, to be his own deliverer. It's not possible for man to live a pleasing life before God. And it's not possible for man to be able to save himself. And in this way, each story points to Jesus Christ as our only and our final deliverer before God. We'll end it there. Any thoughts, comments, questions? Brother Cliff, would you close us in prayer, please?